Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. When your day is going along like normal, and all of a sudden a sound interrupts your day, and that sound, no matter what it is, that sound immediately tells you that something is not quite right. Maybe you're driving down 377 and minding your own business, and then all of a sudden you hear whoop, and there's a police car behind you. And in that moment, just immediately the sound says, oh no, something's not right. Maybe you're in the kitchen and you're up to your elbows in dishes and you're trying to get things cleaned up and all of a sudden from the far reaches of the house where the kids were, you hear a crash. And then the sound of a child crying and you immediately know something's not right. You probably recognize the experience when your car starts making some sort of new noise that it's never made before. Maybe it's a squeal that happens when you put your foot on the brake, or maybe it's a whine that comes whenever you step on the gas, but it definitely wasn't making that sound before. And in that instant, you're immediately wondering, how much is it gonna cost to get it to quit making that sound? The world is noisy. And every day, every day we hear thousands and thousands of distinct sounds. But our brains have trained themselves to be able to pay attention and to process the sounds that we hear and to pick out the sounds that don't belong. The sounds that seem out of place. Call it a survival instinct if you like, but we listen to our surroundings all day long. We hear various sounds everywhere we go and we make quick calculations about which of those sounds make sense in the moment and which of those sounds don't. We're deciding which sounds require a response, which, which sounds require a reaction and which ones can be safely ignored, right? But it's not just the random and unexpected environmental noises around us that we have to figure out. We also spend every day listening to the sound of what other people have to say. And we have to interpret and we have to make decisions about how we would respond, how we should react, what we're going to think about what somebody else has just said to us, don't we? I think this is the more difficult listening task. More difficult than responding to the interruptions, the scary noises, the crashes, the whines in your engine, the sirens. Really, this is the more difficult one. Because no matter the topic, there's all sorts of conflicting opinions out there, right? There's all sorts of different agendas. There's all sorts of different ideas out there. And if you have a big decision to make in your life, you can bet that there will be different sources and different people who are telling you different advice about what you ought to do with your decision. And there are some of those sources that offer wisdom. Some of those sources that are giving you good insight and some of those sources that are, that are going to steer you down the wrong path. And the challenge for us is figuring out who's 
Who's telling me the truth here? I heard a fascinating story recently about basketball legend Wilt Chamberlain, who was a star in the NBA back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Chamberlain was seven foot one inch tall. He played center, which meant that he could just, almost at any point in the game, just reach up and drop the ball into the basket anytime he liked. But, no, but Wilt Chamberlain was a notoriously poor free throw shooter. His NBA career average for free throw success was just barely over 50%. Opposing teams would figure out sometimes that it was safer to just foul him and send him to the, to the, free, point, or the, the free throw line than to let him shoot from the field because at least there he had to make two baskets and he probably wasn't going to make both. But that all changed briefly in the 1961-62 NBA season because Wilt Chamberlain's coach came up with an idea. He said, Wilt, I want you to start taking your free throws and throwing them underhand. It was unconventional, but it worked. Chamberlain started shooting free throws underhanded in all of his games. He immediately improved his success rate. In fact, in that season, he had the best free throw percentage of his entire career versus all the other all-star seasons that he played. In fact, in March of that year, where there was one game where he scored 100 points in one game. That record has never even come close to being broken. And on that night, shooting free throws underhand, Wilt Chamberlain made 28 out of 32 free throws. Shot them all from between his knees like this. And then a few months later, he went back to shooting his free throws overhand. And he immediately went back to shooting them poorly. He even had one season, a few years later, where his free throw percentage for the season was 38%. I mean, here was a guy who could score on command during the game when he was guarded by multiple opposing players. I mean, people would be crawling all over him. Somebody's biting his shins, you know, and he'd be dumping the ball in the basket, no problem. But you put him there at the free throw line by himself, unguarded, and he was a liability to his team. So why did he go back? Why did he go back to shooting underhand since it had worked so well for him when he had tried it? Chamberlain would write about this later in his autobiography after he was retired and he said, the thing about shooting the ball underhand for those free throws, he said, I felt silly. I felt silly shooting underhanded and I know I was wrong. I know some of the best foul shooters in history shot that way. Even now, the best one in the NBA, Rick Barry, shoots underhand. Rick Barry, by the way, had a lifetime free throw success percentage over 90%. Chamberlain said, I just couldn't keep doing it. And so the problem was that this NBA champion who won four season MVP titles, seven NBA season scoring titles, and who is consistently recognized as one of the top 10 players to ever play the game. He ignored the voices of his coaches. He ignored the voices of the statisticians about shooting underhand, and instead he decided to listen to the insecure voice in his own mind that says, you're gonna look silly out there. 
There were voices coming at him from two different directions and one that was promising a path that was wise that would help him to achieve more success and one that was irresistible. He just couldn't ignore the thought of what he looked like compared to all of those other players who were throwing the ball from above their head. You know, sometimes it's hard to trust the voice that you should be listening to, isn't it? And so I wonder, how do you decide? How do you make your decisions about which voices you're gonna to listen to in your life? How do, you, how do you figure out which advice is trustworthy those are personal questions and there's a, probably a litany of answers and factors to be considered, but I think your answers to those questions, those answers shape the direction and the outcomes of your entire life. Now today we're kicking off a mini series of sermons and we're talking about some of Jesus's teaching about money, particularly the teachings that are found in the New Testament book of Luke. And I wanna tell you right from the start this is not one of those series where we're going to talk about giving to the church, although that is important. This is a series where we're going to be considering what Jesus has to say and deciding whether Jesus' voice is the voice of wisdom or not. You see, you might not realize it, but Jesus has a lot to say about money. There may be only one topic, the kingdom of God, that Jesus talks about more than he talks about money. But when Jesus talks about money, especially in the book of Luke, the way that Luke recorded it, when Jesus talks about money, it doesn't typically sound like the kind of financial advice that we're used to hearing from our financial planners. It doesn't sound like the kind of input that we're used to hearing from capitalistic economists. When Jesus talks about money, he doesn't speak as if money makes the world go round. He speaks as if money might make the world burn down. In fact, I could almost guarantee that anyone who's lived their whole life in a culture like ours, a consumer culture like ours, will hear Jesus' words about money and it'll sound off to you. It'll sound like one of those sounds that doesn't belong in your environment. It'll sound like something that doesn't jive with everything else. It'll sound out of tune. It'll sound out of touch. Jesus' words about money will sound wrong to you because it sounds different than almost any other message that you ever hear anywhere else about money. But I know that you're smart enough to know that just because somebody sounds wrong doesn't mean that they are wrong, right? And the fact that you're here today, the fact that you're here singing songs about Jesus, spending time thinking about Jesus together today, tells me that there's something compelling about Jesus and that that means we ought to listen in and at least consider what Jesus has to say, even if it doesn't sound right. So I want, to, I want to point your attention to the book of Luke. Luke was a biographer who wrote the story of Jesus' life from his perspective and the perspective of people that he interviewed about Jesus. And in Luke chapter 6, Luke records Jesus sharing what can only be called hot takes or unpopular opinions about money 
and possessions. First, Jesus makes these surprising statements about money and happiness. And these are going to sound similar to the Beatitudes that we studied earlier this year from Matthew chapter 5. But I'm going to tell you that there's some differences here and they're worth looking at. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, here's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And he's going to go on and he's going to talk about some other human conditions, but then in just a couple of verses later, he follows this up with some equally surprising warnings for rich people. He says, woe to you, which is like saying, you poor thing. Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And when Jesus makes statements like this, I'm assuming that if you're paying attention and if you have a similar cultural background to what I do, and by that I mean somebody who's just grown up in a capitalistic society in the West in the last 2,000 years, when Jesus makes these kinds of statements, those who are paying attention think, wait, 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 that sounds backwards. But, uh, re- try that again, Jesus. You got it, you got it mixed up. He feels happy for poor people and worried for rich people? The hungry people should feel fortunate, but those who have enough to eat ought to feel at risk. These kind of statements do not compute, right? They don't make sense from our economic perspective because in our world, rich people sure seem like the ones to be envied. In our world, it sure seems like the ones who have plenty to eat are the lucky ones. In our world, Jesus' ideas sound out of touch, out of tune. In fact, in our world, when Jesus says things like, woe to you who are rich, we might think to ourselves, well, I mean, he doesn't really mean that. Or we might think, he's probably talking to like real rich people. Like the mega rich, you know? People who are richer than me. Maybe that's what we think. Of course, it's hard to remember, hard to remember that almost all of us are rich by any historical or global measure. It's easy to forget that if your family had options about which vehicle to drive to church this morning, you're among the richest people in history. It's easy to forget that having a day off during the week and having the means to go out to eat on any given day puts us in the upper echelon of history's wealthiest people. It's easy to forget all of that because when we look around, we don't feel rich. We don't feel rich because we see people who appear to have more than we do and their lives look so carefree. We don't feel rich because most of us don't feel rich because we're still working to reach some target number that's going to give us the confidence that we can stop working and still have enough so that we won't be one of those blessed hungry people. We don't feel rich because we don't yet feel satisfied, right? I mean, and then that, just being honest, I'm not prescribing you, I'm talking to me. Like, I, I promise you, I'm never going to step on your toes from this pulpit without stepping on my toes first, okay? 
I'm talking to me. We don't feel rich because we don't yet feel satisfied. And so maybe when we hear Jesus' words about the fortunes of poor people and the poverty of rich people, maybe we dismiss those sayings because we assume he can't be talking about us. Maybe we dismiss those sayings because it's so opposite the narrative of the rest of our culture and our common sense. But I want to suggest to you this morning, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is not threatening doom and gloom for rich people. I don't think when Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, I don't think he's saying, because you have money, I'm going to get you. Okay? I want to be real clear about that. He is not, he is not threatening doom and gloom for people of means. What he's doing is challenging the very paradigm that we instinctively use to look at the world. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to punish the rich people. He's saying the rich people are already torturing themselves. They're already torturing themselves by putting their hope in accumulation that doesn't truly satisfy. He's saying rich people should be pitied because they've staked their life, they've used their time, they've invested their years on the wrong goals. And the question we got to wrestle with, the question you and I have to ask, do you think Jesus knows what he's talking about? Is it possible that Jesus could be right? There's another sequence of stories from Jesus' life. It's recorded a few chapters later in Luke, Luke chapter 12. Jesus is teaching a large crowd of people, and he's just finished telling them about how God values every human life. About how God values every human life even more than he values the littlest sparrows. He says, God takes care of the sparrows, and you're worth so much more than those. And when he, when he says this, he's talking to poor people. He's talking to people who feel insignificant in this world. He's talking to people who might be surprised to find out that God love, cares about them even more than sparrows, because sometimes they, they haven't recognized that compared to the rest of their community. He's talking to people who feel insignificant, and then suddenly, interrupting his teaching, Chapter 12, verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to invite the, divide the inheritance with me. Which is a money question, right? And we don't get any more details about this family dispute. I, I don't know. I don't know all the ins and outs about what happened. I don't, I don't know if somebody was being mistreated. I don't know if this, this person just wanted their brother to have pity on them and share a larger portion of the family's money. We don't know those details. And Jesus doesn't involve himself in the dispute. In fact, his response to this person is, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Which is to say, keep me out of this. Y'all figure it out. But what Jesus does do I mean, remember, he's been sitting here talking to poor people, telling them about how rich they are because of God's love for them, and then somebody says, hey, help me get my hands on some more money. And he doesn't get involved in the drama, but he, he, what he does do is he, he's, he warns them, getting the money is not going to be the solution you think it is. Verse 15, he says, or it says, then he said to them, watch out. 
Now read this, read this here. Jesus Christ says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. The Greek word he uses here for life, when he says life does not consist, the Greek word is the word that's associated with abundant life or eternal life. If you look up the other places it's used in the scripture, typically it's, it's referring to rich life. And Jesus is saying owning a lot is not the path to that. Owning a lot is not the path to the rich, good life. I wonder, I wonder if I shouldn't just put this sticker on my wallet. Watch out, be on your guard. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I think Jesus anticipated that people back then, and maybe people today, would have a hard time following his logic with that statement. And so, as a master teacher, Jesus added an illustration in the form of a parable or a story with a message. Verse 16 says, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I've got it. Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself and then Jesus offers this commentary on the story. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is, this is the kind of Bible passage that if you, if you really think about it, it'll keep you up late at night, you know. If you think about this, I mean, you know, it's that time of year coming up here where you got to like, you know, re-enroll in, you know, the healthcare stuff for next year at work, and you got to tell them how much you want to set aside for the 401k every couple of weeks and all of that stuff. You know, it's that time of year coming up. And, and, and then the preacher went and read this story. And I want to tell you, I, I think this story, I think this story sounds threatening to you. It sounds threatening to me if we read this as if God is punishing the rich man for something. As if, as if God is saying to this rich man, I'm going to kill you. But that's not what the story says. And I'm convinced that's not what's happening in this story. This is a fictional story anyway. Jesus made this up to make a point. But what Jesus is saying here is that wealth and the pursuit of pleasure and security can consume us so much that we fail to look far enough into the future. That our constant obsession with making sure that we have enough for today and tomorrow can keep us from thinking about what about after that? In this story, the man who was already rich, don't miss that part, it says at the beginning of the story, a rich man, the, the land, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, it said. This man was already rich, and he got even richer. He had a good year. I mean, the market worked out just right, you know. 
I mean, there he was in northern Israel, but way down in the south, they had a famine, and so it drove the price of grain up, you know. The market was just right. His investment paid off big. And so for a season, he consumed himself. How am I going to capitalize on all of this? How am I going to lock in all of my windfall? How am I going to preserve the surplus from this harvest? He says, I'm going to tear down my buildings. I can get a tax write-off for this too. He says, I'm going to tear down my barns that are too small. I'm going to build bigger barns on the land that could have, I could have used some of that land to produce more crops next season and the season after that and the season after that. But that's okay. I'll put barns there. And he says he had more than enough to last him a long time. So he says, you know what? I've, I've kind of been tired of farming. Close up shop. Coast for a while. Let the productive land that God has blessed me with just sit there idle. I'm going to lay off all the farmhands. That'll save me some more. I'll lay off all the people that I've been hiring in the previous seasons. I'm not going to need them anymore. It says he set aside enough for a long retirement and he felt secure in his planning. But what he didn't foresee was that his life might not last as long as he had imagined. What he didn't foresee was dying of something other than old age and natural causes. And so when his life ended by surprise, when his life ended prematurely, the point of the story is that his wealth did him no good at that point. At that point, it did not matter. In fact, it became a problem for everybody else to, to iron out and figure out. It was a dead end. And this is a tragic story. Because here's the story of a guy who, by all cultural accounts, seemed like he was very successful, and he gets to the end of his life, and he finds out he was chasing the wrong goal. And the more I reflect on this story, the more I'm convinced the problem is not that the man did something sinful. It's that the man did something stupid. It's not that the man did something wrong. It's that he did something ignorant and selfish. It's hard to talk about money in church, isn't it? Try it from up here. It's hard to talk about money in church. There's been a lot of abuses. You see the stuff, the news, the headlines, the social media, about all the you know, pastors and church leaders with their fancy sneakers and outfits and private jets and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to talk about money in church. But we need to talk about money in church. We need to talk about money in church because money can so easily become the focal point of our attention. It can so easily become the object of our worship, even if the worship doesn't look anything like singing songs and praying prayers. We got to talk about money in church because money, and Jesus knew this, money can so easily get its claws into your heart and your soul and your calendar, and it can make you think that's the goal. That's, or it can make you think, this is what's going to help me reach the, other, the real goals. The, the security, the comfort, the pleasure, the status, 
the memories, the resources, the assets. Money can so easily just dig its claws into you. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that it was really, really easy in every culture, in all of human history, in every civilization, on every continent. Jesus knew that it's so easy for money to just get its claws in you and make you think this is the point. And so we got to talk about money in church. We got to talk about this because Jesus talked about this. We got to talk about this because we got to let, we, we got to begin to take a more objective view, point of view, and to see money for what it really is and for what it's really not. Because the problem is money can become a trap in your spiritual life. Money can get between you and God. Money can be the source of your disappointment with God, your doubt about God. Money can be the hurdle that sets you up for a life that ends in disappointment. You know, I don't know, maybe Jesus was crazy. Maybe he didn't know what he was talking about. I don't, I don't see a whole lot of other textbooks that are taking this approach. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, woe to the rich, woe to the full. I don't see any other textbooks that are, that are using that approach, taking that strategy. Maybe Jesus was crazy. But what if he's not? What if he's not? What if Jesus knows what he's talking about? What if Jesus knows something that we don't? And knows something that we don't realize, we don't understand about our relationship with money because it's kind of like that it's kind of like that noise your car makes that you weren't expecting you're going to hear that noise and sometimes you think man that sounds to me like a warning that something's wrong with this car maybe you're going to hear this teaching and think hmm that sounds to me like a warning that something's wrong with Jesus. That maybe Jesus doesn't have the answers that I need. You might think that. Or, or, hear me out. Or it might be that we're actually listening to wisdom. And it's just so far beyond us that it's going to take us a while to figure that out. It could be that when we're listening to Jesus' difficult teachings, countercultural, counterintuitive teachings, unpopular teachings about money, it could be that we're actually listening to wisdom. And the thing is, when you hear something that doesn't sound right, but then you figure out that there was wisdom in it. When you hear somebody say, shoot the basketball underhanded, and you're like, no, that doesn't sound right. That'll never work. And then you try it, and you have the best season of your life. Then all of a sudden, you realize maybe that person knew something about basketball that I didn't know. Maybe that person had something figured out that I needed to listen to. Maybe there was wisdom beyond me. Maybe there was wisdom beyond everybody else that I'm around. Maybe there was wisdom beyond all the other players in the league. Maybe there's wisdom out there that even though it sounds kooky. Maybe I need to listen to that. 
It could be. It could be that when you're listening to the voice of Jesus talk about money, it could be that he's hoping you'll have ears to hear it. That, that this time, this time, you won't skip over these verses and think, no, he didn't mean that. That maybe this time you won't skip over these verses and think, he's not talking about me. He's talking about real rich people. Maybe Jesus is just hoping, hoping that this time, this time we'll hear it. You know, there's just so many other places in the Gospels, so many other places in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that I feel like life has proven to me Jesus knew what he was talking about. So many other places in these stories and these teachings where it was like, man, I would never have come up with that on my own, but Jesus was dead on. He knew what he meant. He knew what he was saying. And particularly, particularly when he talked about the condition of my heart and how I needed to be made a new creation from the bottom up. And so that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing when we're, when we're together as a church and when we listen to the teachings of Jesus. When we get together like this and we think about all that Jesus had to say, we're going to talk about money, but we're going to talk about the other things that Jesus talked about because it's, it, what we are learning is that Jesus was right, that we need a rebuild. We need a renewal. We need a restoration. We need to be redeemed. And that offer is still there for us.